Today is Easter Sunday. We had the commemoration of Jesus' death just now, and he died on the Friday, Good Friday, and today we celebrate his resurrection. So that's why it's good to to break bread together to remember his death, and now we're going to have the joy of remembering his resurrection. It's actually interesting that um, that we remember his resurrection every Sunday because the early church changed the day on which they met together from the Saturday, the seventh day, under the old system, the Jewish system, to the Sunday, which was the first day of the new creation in, in celebration of Jesus' resurrection. So every Sunday, not just Easter Sunday, we're celebrating that Jesus is risen from the dead. He is risen. So my goal today is speaking about the empty tomb. I'm going to look at what a strong foundation our faith is built on and to allow the joy of that truth to sink in. And I'm going to begin by looking at three evidences for the empty tomb with the initials J, E and T, then a new argument that's convincing even atheists and then end by looking at what practical difference does this make? <clears throat> so three evidences for the empty tomb. There's been a huge change among scholars in the last 40 years um, regarding the, the, the resurrection. 40 years ago, very few secular scholars would have taken the resurrection seriously. But there has been a huge change. And I'm just going to show you a, a clip from a video by Gary Habermas, who I'll talk about a little later, uh, regarding this. So I'm just going to show this right now. A lot of things have happened in resurrection studies in the last 30 years. When I went to graduate school, <laughs> Middle Ages, it was the 1970s. Uh, if you talked about, I'll pick a topic, if you talk about the empty tomb, there'd be a lot of snickering, and nobody but evangelicals who'd published in that area would accept it. If you talked about resurrection appearances of Jesus, everybody would have laughed. Seriously. Today, the majority of New Testament scholars, theologians, historians, and philosophers who publish in the area believe in the empty tomb. Almost two-thirds. And where in the 70s, if you talked about bodily appearances of Jesus, they'd say, yeah, that's nice. Go back to your church and talk about it, but don't do it on a university campus. Today, bodily resurrection is the predominant view in the academy. Something has happened in 30, 40 years. What's going on? What, what caused the switch? That some of the latest folks who publish under the self-defined title of agnostic, skeptic, 
and they're friends with the skeptical community. They're often cited by skeptics. These are, quote-unquote, their fellows. Here's one, a prominent New Testament scholar who calls himself a skeptic. And he says, yeah, I don't know what i do with this stuff. He said, but one thing I'm sure of, the risen Jesus appeared to his followers after his death. Is that where skepticism is? How many skeptics have moved over from here? I mean, on a grading scale, from like A to F, you know, we'll have the believers be the A's and the skeptics be the D's and F's. What's happened to move the D's to C's and C pluses and B minuses? Okay, so that leads us in very nicely to our first topic, which is evidence for the empty tomb. J-E-T. J is the Jerusalem factor. E is enemy testimony. And T is testimony of women. And I'm actually going to take them in reverse order. Testimony of women, enemy testimony, and then Jerusalem factor. So let's start with the T. And this is the argument that has been most effective at convincing even non-Christian scholars. Uh, it's not made them Christians, but it's made them admit that there was something that happened. It goes like this. If the empty tomb was a made-up story, in those days, you would never make women your main witnesses. You would never choose women as your first witnesses. And there was an extreme lack of respect for women in the Jewish culture of that time and in some of the other cultures, um, but particularly in the culture of the rabbinic culture right there in Jerusalem and in that climate. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from that time, which or which we should all be disgusted by. But this is the truth. And this is from Josephus, who is a historian, Jewish writer from that time. And he says, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it's probable that they may not speak truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. And this is uh, Josephus, who's a, a Jewish writer of the time. And then let's look at another one, which is a, 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 a quote from, um, uh, from the Talmud. This is a Jewish rabbinic law. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. Also, they are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. And that's a quote from the Talmud from that reference I've given. So if you wanted to invent a story of the resurrection, you would have had Peter or James be the witnesses. You wouldn't choose women to be the witnesses. Now, I just want to say that um, sometimes we think that women had this kind of treatment in all ancient times. And actually, that's not the case. If you go back to the time of Abraham uh, around then, um, women w- were treated with much more respect and had much more influence than at this time. But this was a particularly bad time. And uh, the other point is that when the men hear about it, 
they uh, their reaction is not good. They didn't believe at all, as we're going to see in a minute. Now, we're going to read from Luke 24 now, and um, I'm going to ask some women, or have have asked some women, to bear witness at this time. And uh, I've they 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 did made this recording yesterday, and I'm just I'm going to show their recordings right now. I'm reading from Luke 24, verses um, 1 through 12. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the aromatic spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, Suddenly, two men stood beside them in dazzling attire. The women were terribly frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has been raised. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then the woman remembered his words. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He bent down and saw only the stripes of linen cloth. Then he went home, wondering what had happened. Now that very day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, What are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. A man who, with his powerful deeds and words, proved to be a prophet before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Not only this, but it is now the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some group, some women of our group amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and said they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So he said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things that were written about himself in all the scriptures. Well, thank you. That was the that was from one of the gospel accounts and uh, of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection. And women were the first and men were slow to believe. I'm now going to show you a little comment on that by Gary Habermas. In a recent survey I've done of contemporary scholarship regarding the empty tomb, I found 23 reasons why scholars are usually inclined to allow the empty tomb. I'll tell you the best. The testimony of the women is far and away the best reason given by contemporary scholars. It's the rule that ancient historians call embarrassment. And it goes like this. If you're going to make up the story of the empty tomb, for crying out loud, make Peter the guy that tells the story. Make Paul the guy, that anybody but the women, because it's not true that the women couldn't testify in a court of law, but it is true that there's an inverse relation between the importance of the material and whether you pick women. But wait a minute. All the Gospels pick women. What's the reason? Because the women found the empty tomb. So it's a really nice little argument. So this is a very powerful argument. The... Uh, There are many arguments that he's accumulated, something like 50 arguments for the resurrection. And the second one that he rates as highly is called enemy testimony. This is the E in our jet. And this is how the argument goes. Right from the beginning, the Jews acknowledged the empty tomb by stating that the disciples stole the body. And we read in Matthew, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, you may say, well, you know, that's just uh, the, the Jews who are saying that. But the early enemies of Christianity indirectly assume the empty tomb. And then we have Justin Martyr in dialogue with Trifo, and he it's it, this in this dialogue we see the risk written at the time, we see this this very clearly enemies of Christianity acknowledging that the tomb was empty. And similarly, in a writing called Dispac Dispac Aculis by Tertullian, the same kind of thing, evidence from the time outside of the Bible that the enemies of Christianity were admitting that the tomb was empty. So that's our E, and then we have J. We're going the opposite order of jet, so we're, we're looking at the J now. And I've called this the Jerusalem factor. So hardly anyone denies that Jerusalem was the birthplace of the earliest Christian preaching. They also agree that it started very soon after the death of Jesus. This would be the least likely place then to teach the resurrection. If Jesus' grave was a short distance away and it was still occupied, it would be be pretty easy to refute. You know, a brief walk could solve the matter for any questioning person. Um, And even if you thought, well, you know, it's been stolen, then it's Jerusalem and there were thousands of eyewitnesses, we, we learn, whose testimony you could compare. And so it would be very difficult actually in Jerusalem 
at the time and immediately afterwards to concoct this story with so many people around who were eyewitnesses and who had seen events there. And this turns out to be an argument that that people, the non-Christians who are looking at the evidence have found very persuasive. <clears throat> to try and make up a story in the place where it was supposedly happened within a few days of it happening would be extremely difficult to do. <clears throat> so we saw some clips of Gary Habermas earlier and uh, he's got an interesting story because as a young man he had doubts about Christianity and he thought I need to settle these doubts I'm going to go to a secular university and I'm going to do a research degree on the resurrection and I'm going to find out what happened and he was so convinced of the evidence for the resurrection um, with his results being scrutinized by you know, secular professors he was so convinced that he dedicated his life to speaking and writing on this subject. He has such a passion for it. And I would, I would urge you to look at his stuff on YouTube and his writings. He's, it's amazing, um, what he's done and the evidence he's pulled together for this. So that's the, um, the, the three evidences, J, E, and T. I wonder if you can remember what the J, E, and T are. So can you remember what they are? Jerusalem factor, enemy testimony, testimony of women. Very good. Yes. So I hope you all got that as well as Anne did there. So, um, so that's so. I'd like to look at a new argument. We've done three so far. I'd like to look at a fourth argument that's convincing even atheists, and we'll end by looking at the practical differences. <clears throat> so you might say, okay. The tomb was empty, but what about evidence that Jesus was actually raised? I mean, the tomb could have been empty for a number of reasons. Well, the old way that Christians would reason on this, and this is not bad. This is a good argument, but it's, you know, this is, it's, it's now, there's a better one, but this is the old, old way. It would say, well, you know, Jesus uh, died and was raised around 3033 AD. And uh, in 55 AD, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. No, that's not too late afterwards. Only 32 years for the ancient world. That's pretty good between it happening and writing about it. So it's pretty good. It's actually amazing because if you take someone as famous as Alexander the Great that we talked about last week, you know, there could hardly be somebody more famous than him uh, in, in the ancient times. And yet... Do you know how long it was before we have anything in writing about him? It was between 300 and 450 years after his death that we have actually some good writing, any kind of writing for about, for about uh, 300 years. And then some, some more details by about 450 years after his death. And that's not just for him with most uh, ancient famous people, you have to wait a long time before you hear anything written about them. And yet we don't doubt the truth of it. And yet with, with Jesus, it's like, you know, 32 years, that's pretty amazing. Um, and, uh, uh, but I want to say there's an even better argument than this that 
so good that more that that more and more skeptical scholars are admitting the evidence for Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, um, I'm going to read to you um, from Acts and First Corinthians. Um, let's just look at Acts to start with, and this is setting the background. Paul stayed on in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching God's message to the people. While Gallio was governor of Achaia, some of the Jewish leaders got together and grabbed Paul. They brought him into court. Now, why is this important? <clears throat> because Roman governors only served uh, usually for a year, max two years. And so and we know when Gallio was governor. We have it very, very precisely um, uh, down. It was it was um, 51 to 52 AD, just just that one year. And so we know that from Roman historical records. <clears throat> and and historians will agree, this is pretty good evidence. Like, it's very difficult to make this up. Um, why would he make it up anyway? So this precisely puts the time that Paul was in Corinth. So, so then if you pair that with the letter to the Corinthians, and I want to say that even atheists pretty much agree that Paul existed and that he wrote this letter. So here's the uh, letter that it's pretty much universally agreed Paul wrote. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you, that you received and on which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message I preached to you. So that date then is the date that he was there. For I passed it on to you as of first importance, what I also received. So we know when he passed it on to him, we know the on to them, we know the date. And that phrase there, what I also received, we're going to come back to that. So what is it? What is this, this message that he passed on to them? Here it is. <clears throat> that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then it goes on. I'll, I'll show you the rest of it in just a minute. But first of all, I want to say that the way these lines are written in the Greek is a kind of rhythmic way that you would write something if it was designed to be committed to memory. Most people weren't couldn't read and write in those days and so they would remember things and this is written in a way that by tell you can look at it the way it's written in that kind of way and there are things we have today that um um we we remember like the rule for i and e the order of i and e in our in english i before e except after c and it goes on a bit which i can't remember but that's a thing and then another one we might remember about putting screws in um uh, righty tighty, um, lefty Lucy. <laughs> and then another one, which is a uh, red sky at night, shepherd's delight, red sky in morning, a shepherd's warning. So, uh, that's, um, uh, those are things that we, we remember and the commit to memory because they're easy. And this was written in that way, which suggests it was already something that was something you would take hold as a, as a core of what your belief is like it's a core thing that you you commit to memory and we can read on um to the 
the resurrection evidence that he appeared to see fast that's peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to james then to all the apostles last of all as though to one born at the wrong time he appeared also to me and so that's um uh, that's evidence then of uh, oh, and then he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. <clears throat> so this is what Paul is writing in First Corinthians, but he's referring back to this, what he did when he was there with them. He said he received this. This is the truth. Let me just go back and show you. He says there in verse 3, I pass to you as a first important what I also received so this is it here what i also received so when did he when did paul receive that well it's very interesting to look at the timeline here and it's interesting um let's go forward timeline even the skeptic bart ehrman and bart ehrman is no friend of the gospel he's he argues against christianity but he says you can trace this statement to one year after the cross. This is, this is somebody who's an enemy of Christianity. He says this. Why does he say this? He said, well, Jesus died and was raised between 30 to 33 AD. We know that from the dates of Pilate and Tiberius. And we know that Paul met up with Peter around 35 AD. So, you know, within a few years to make sure they had the same gospel. This was the purpose of doing it, and we can we can read that um, in the book of Acts. Um, and this would have been the key statement of their faith. And so, and Paul was preaching this in fifty one fifty two A.D. And so, this argument then is that right from the beginning, this defined Christianity because it was so uniform. It, it as the Christianity exploded across the world. Everyone had this same message. If it developed later, you'd see it developing one way, one direction, one in another part. You'd see diversity. But this must have happened before it started to spread. And uh, another man, E.P. Saunders, one of the world's leading historians, not a follower of Jesus. And he says, right out of the gate, all of the basic teachings about Jesus were in place. The very earliest preaching was the cross, the resurrection, and the divinity of Jesus. That is amazing. And uh, he references this passage in, again in First Corinthians, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Well, <clears throat> I just think this is amazing and uh, it's it's just so um it's just so wonderful to see this just this solidity that just people can't argue against it because there's such strong evidence that this really happened in history and we're just going to have another reading from the passage following the one we were doing earlier in Luke when Jesus is saying basically the same thing as we have up here Luke 24 verse 44 then he said to them 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it stands written that the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now during the blessing, he departed and was taken up into heaven. So they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple's courts, blessing God. Thank you. So if we were to make the statement uh, that the earliest followers of Jesus had experiences that they believed were appearances of Jesus, that they were so convinced they were willing to die for this belief, hardly any skeptics would disagree. We'd have pretty much universal agreement in the universities of the world, in history departments, that this was true. The earliest followers of Jesus had experiences that they believed were the appearances of Jesus, and they were so convinced they were willing to die for this belief. And so I find this evidence very compelling, and I'll send out a link to the, in the, in the notes for the sermon, to the, um, the videos from Gary Habermas, if you'd like to see more of this. So, uh, um, we've, we've looked at the three evidences, J-E-T, and then we've looked at the fourth, which is a new argument that's convincing even atheists. And now I'd like to ask, what practical difference does it make? And I just have one slide on this, which we're going to close with. So if we take this line, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, what does that mean for you and me right now? What practical difference does it mean? There's a, a, a song that we sing, Rock of Ages, and the Rock of Ages has a line in it, Be of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. And that puts it very, very powerfully, very beautifully, because the guilt of sin is dealt with in his death, and the power of death is dealt with in his resurrection. It's not just the power of death, but it's the power of of sin keeping us down in our lives it gives us victory over sin because we have the new life the new resurrection life of jesus within us and uh, it's interesting that um, a large study was done on what why atheists are atheists it was a lot of people were asked who are atheists you know what what's actually happened and um, what they discovered was that most people who don't follow Jesus have reason, have a reason, and it's not the facts. It's not that they don't think there's sufficient evidence for the resurrection. It's because, um, usually, not always, but usually there's some, uh, 
they've maybe seen hypocrisy in people who call themselves Christians. Maybe they're angry about at God at something. C.S. Lewis uh, began his life um, professing to be a Christian, and then um, his mother was sick and he prayed and she died. And he was so angry at God for this that he turned away from Christianity. But um, as God worked in him, he realized that uh, thought this through and thought through the problem of suffering, he came back to God and came back to Christianity and turned turned away from his atheism. But that kind of that kind of story, um, for one reason or another, people leave Christianity, not very, very rarely because they don't think there's sufficient evidence for the resurrection. And I want to say, and this is my closing statement, because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, we can live free from guilt and condemnation, and we can live with a new power available in our lives. And this is so important because so many of us go around carrying this sort of guiltiness you know i'm just such a failure i fail god all the time um it's it's you know he's disappointed in me that kind of failure and that is not how we should live because god says i will remember your sins no more you're washed that kind of behavior belongs to your old person but you are a new creation now and inside you is a perfect spotless new creation and the old will fall away like a husk and the real you is the new person and this is this resurrection teaching that there's a new person inside us that is, is perfect and spotless and will live forever is so encouraging. And when we come to God, we need to come in the light of these verses. A God who, because of what Jesus has done, sees us as beautiful and perfect, a new, a new creation in him that sees us and enjoys us and rejoices in us so much as his newborn children. And we need to live in the new life that we have in him and the joy that we now have in our relationship with our dear father. And so I would say that failure to grasp these verses here is at the root of all dysfunction in Christian lives, all failure in Christian lives, and is the basis for joy in our experience with God. Well, I, I don't have time to, I could preach several sermons on this right now. I don't have time to do that, but I just want you to think through um, this question then. Um, do you experience this? Is this your life? Are you living in the light of this? And if you're not a Christian today, then Jesus is offering this to you. He says, come to me and receive it. Just come, just ask him, Jesus, please cleanse my sin and give me your new resurrection life that I'll be free from the old and living in the new. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus Christ, that he would die to take the punishment of our sin, to wash it away, and he would be raised from the dead that we might have new life. Lord, I pray that all of us here would receive this in joy, and you would bless us in our life. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. I get pretty excited by this truth, and I hope you do as well.